Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 473 of the podcast and it's Friday 24th of January 2020 as I record this. So today I'm talking with Rebecca Giblin about empowering authors around copyright because your author career is in your hands. Publishers are not charities. <laughs> and sometimes I feel like many authors think that publishers are somehow doing them a favour by accepting them. And they're like, wow, it's so amazing. Whereas actually, they're a business. <laughs> they're, they're making money. And they are there to make money from your IP. And that's all good if you understand what you are signing. But as Rebecca talks about today, there are a lot of contract clauses that you should avoid. So the aim of today's show is to empower you as an author to understand a bit more about contracts. If you have an agent, you still need to understand this. Uh, And if you're an indie, you also need to understand this because you are signing contracts when you upload your uh, ebooks and audiobooks and um, files for print on demand and everything you're doing when you are publishing with a distributor, uh, you're also signing uh, contracts. So for example, when you sign up for exclusivity on various platforms, it stops you from doing other things with your books. The same deal when you sign with a publisher, you have to be careful what you sign or you could stop yourself doing things with your books. So today we are discussing some studies on the publishing industry, what publishing clauses to watch out for, why this is so important for authors. And we also have a little discussion on the impact of AI on copyright, which I'll also be talking about more in the Futurist segment coming up. In publishing news this week, the bookseller reports that PRH, Penguin Random House, has pulled out of unlimited subscription models. Uh, Penguin Random House has withdrawn its ebooks and digital audio titles from unlimited access subscription models in a major rebuttal of the business model. Quote, Our decision was made collectively by the company's international leadership team to preserve a diversity of content in the marketplace and the actual and perceived long-term value of our author's intellectual property. And I thought that was very timely given the uh, topic of the conversation today on the podcast. And I have obviously talked many times on this show about uh, going wide versus exclusive. And what PRH are doing is basically moving away from the um, this. I, I don't think they have an exclusive model, but from the subscription model, which is what most of those exclusive models are. So that uh, because of this actual and perceived value of IP. And I certainly agree with this. I think this is a very, um, this is important. I think this is more important than, it hasn't been talked about very much, but I actually think this is super important. And I feel it. uh, So, and I'm, you know, obviously authors choose to put their books into exclusive programs because of various reasons. But personally, as a reader, I don't read books in those programs. Uh, I feel that there is a perceived something <laughs> around them. So I I really think this is going to become more and more important as we go forward and really interesting to see uh, them doing this. Some people have said, oh, maybe they're going to start their own subscription model, but I can't see them doing that uh, really. So in the Futurist segment, which again ties into what we're talking about today. So first of all, I want to set the scene <laughs> I was listening to uh, a new podcast. um, It's on 5G. It's called This Time Tomorrow. And it's by the same people who did the Sleepwalkers podcast, which is why I'm interested in it. But they they have one episode on the future of clothing and uh, a guy from Levi Strauss, the jeans company. Now, I'm not interested in smart clothing particularly, although I've do wear an Apple Watch, which is kind of a wearable tech. But they had a quote on the show which really struck me. They said, practice agility and never feel comfortable with the status quo. I'll read that again. Practice agility and never feel comfortable with the status quo. 
And this is exactly the attitude that I feel is important around the futurist stuff that I talk about. And I know that many of you feel uncomfortable with this segment and many people fast forward it. And they're not listening anymore. <laughs> but this uh, this idea, and if you do go and listen to this podcast, the smart clothing thing is fascinating. It's not my area and I'm not going to get into that, but it's fascinating to hear about other industries who are looking ahead and going, right, how do we need to pivot? We can't just be a pair of jeans or a jacket. What can we be? Uh, so I just wanted to set that scene with this also on the human aspect of creation. We are writers. We will always write. And I am not making any comment on the desire to write, the fact that we will always write, uh, the fact that human creativity is never going to go away. What I am talking about when I go into the futurist stuff is is more about the financial side, the business side, because people like me uh, are making our living from our writing. And that might be online, that might be books, it might be different forms of writing, but primarily uh, I do make a living with my writing. Uh, some of my words are generated by speaking, but they're still words. Um, and this kind of change, these changes will impact the future business model for people who write. Now, and this counts. So if you're someone who does writing as part of your job in any form, uh, whether that's freelance writing, whether that's, um, you know, if you're in a company and you do writing as part of your job, then this is also relevant um, as we go through. Okay, let's get into the news article. So all these things have happened in the last couple of weeks. So I've put them all together into one to tell you about at the front of this show because we're talking about copyright. First of all, as reported on VentureBeat uh, on the 10th of January 2020, and I think it's a very significant thing, a Chinese court rules that an AI written article is protected by copyright. And as far as I know, this is the first time in copyright law that this has been done. Uh, so, And of course, I didn't think this would happen so quickly. When I did my uh, report in July 2019 about the, the uh, nine ways that AI is going to impact writing and books in our author career, I, I had a 10-year horizon, a decade horizon. So I did not expect this to happen so fast. Um, and this is what's so weird with changes. Uh, sometimes they happen super fast and sometimes they're really, really, really slow and then they're really, really, really fast. <laughs> so uh, just to go into it a bit more. So this is non-fiction, obviously. Uh, Tencent, which is a very large uh, Chinese um, tech company. Tencent has published content produced by automated software Dreamwriter, which has a focus on business and financial stories. The court found that the article's articulation and expression had a certain originality and met the legal requirements to be classed as a written work, thus qualifying for copyright protection. So this is going to open up a conversation. And uh, for me, it was more a shocking thing that the AI had enough certain originality to get uh, copyright. Uh, it didn't sound that it was just plagiarised off something else, I guess. So if you are a freelance writer in the nonfiction space, I would I think this is the most relevant to you. It's certainly relevant to me because it's going to uh, mean there's more and more content written online by AI um, writers, automated writers. And that will crowd out uh, the business model that I currently have, which is a lot to do with online traffic. Uh, so that's interesting. <laughs> Now, but don't think that novelists can get away with it. Uh, I mean, obviously we can and we are. <laughs> this is this is the next big thing that happened, like literally a few days later. Google AI's language model Reformer can now process the entirety of novels. Uh, again, reported by VentureBeat. And all the links are in the show notes. You can go and read them. Now, the reason this is uh, important, and in fact, this hadn't happened when I spoke to Rebecca Giblin. And you'll hear her say, oh, I don't think uh, novelists are in any uh, trouble yet because the AIs that have generated uh, fictional stuff haven't been very good. But this is why. So previous models for machine learning have only been able to read in small snippets of input text in the hundreds of words. But this new version can actually handle up to a million words. So it will, uh, they used crime and punishment as one of the texts that they trained this uh, algorithm on. And this is 
this is this is the game changer in my mind. And I've talked before about this possibility where the entire works of Stephen King and Dan Brown and J.F. Penn could be read into a machine like this and blend the styles and uh, output some kind of work from that. And we wouldn't know what came from where. And I do discuss this with Rebecca. But this is exactly why we need to get involved with copyright and understanding what this means. The rights to use an author's work in such a model don't even exist yet. There is no clause, as far as I know, in any publisher contract that says we retain the right um, to use your work in a model to generate other work. But if you have signed a contract, which and we talk about such contract clauses uh, in the show today, uh, all formats, all languages, all rights for the term of copyright, that could probably be said to cover such a thing. Uh, oh, um, it's all formats na- that exist now and to be invented. I have seen these clauses in, in contracts. So, The reason I keep coming back to this is we cannot just turn away. We cannot let the tech industry run with this because there's no way publishers are not engaging. So at London Book Fair this year, 2020, I will be going to a session on the impact of AI in publishing and I'll be very interested to hear where they are with this. But uh, recently the US... um, Copyright and Patent Office called for comment on these types of things. So I think we are going to see much more discussion. The other thing on the other side of things, so if you're now going, oh, I would never let that happen. I would never want that to happen to my book. The other side of the problem is that all of the text they're training these AIs on is basically written by um, people who were published, who are now, whose works are now out of copyright. So if you think that the author has to have been dead for 50 years, 50 to 70 years. So who are all the authors who were published over 50 to 70 years ago? They were only of a certain type. And if we want diverse voices in algorithms, and this is one of the big issues is the bias in AI because of what they train it on. Now, personally, I would be more than willing to license my work to be included in algorithms. And I want, I also feel that licensing in advance of things being pirated is a good idea because who's to stop people doing this? But if you license it, at least people have a chance to use it in the right way, in the legal way. So I think that it's important to license our work to things in order to train uh, algorithms with different voices. Uh, You know, I'm a woman uh, and most of those books, like Crime and Punishment, you know, um, there are lots of those books that were basically written by... um, uh, men of means who wrote those books and not people from lots of diverse backgrounds. So I think that's why it's important to engage. Then finally, I also, (laughs) I had a big week that when this happened, so basically this, um, the first thing happened on the 10th of January and these other two things happened on the 16th of January. And that week I was, (laughs) I was like, what is going on here? There's some kind of thing in the air. I don't know what's going on. But this final thing, um, The Guardian reported that Hollywood is now using AI tools. Warner Brothers is using Synalytic. 20th Century Fox is partnering with Google using Merlin, which is quite cool. And other services include include Scriptbook and Vault AI. Uh, And it's a really interesting article. Uh, They all do different kind of things. uh, But the, the one I thought was interesting for us is Script script book, uh, which analyzes scripts as opposed to actors and directors. The founder said, most people believe that cast is everything, but we've learned that the story has the highest predictive value of success for a film. Now, she says, a good story will succeed even without stars and potentially more so with them. Now, I was like, wow, that's awesome. So the story is the most important thing. <laughs> but because of that, Scriptbook is developing a screenwriting AI, which is called Deep Story. Um, and she says, it really is a co-creator. Uh, the engine takes into account everything that you've written and it will deliver you the next scene or the next 10 pages or write it to the end. Deep Story still has much to learn. 
but it's improving. Within five years, we'll have scripts written by AI that you would think are better than human writing. So all of those articles, I think, are well worth having a look at. Um, And if you're still listening, (laughs) then you do want to engage with this. And for me, as I said with Orna in the show about the trends for the 2020s, what doesn't change is the human need to create and express ourselves. There will always be people who want to write. There'll always be people who, you know, want to write their memoir, want to write a novel, want to write books that include their personal stories. And this is the point, okay? We cannot compete with the robots. But what we need to do is double down on being human, be more human. So, I have, I literally have gone back to the drawing board on my business model with this and um, I am going to adapt for the 2020s. I am going to get back out there speaking. I'm going to do more live events. I'm going to run some things in Bath. Part of this is to do with books and travel and kind of moving into those types of things. But also I really want to be more human and I spent a lot of time scaling up my business to where it um, can reach a lot of people at the same time. But now I also want to make sure that I am not beaten down <laughs> by online content generated by robots. So I'm going to um, start doing events and other things like that. So that's my plan. Uh, so I am open to speaking and doing things like that. But the overarching message is be aware of this stuff, um, but don't get worried about it, just be more human and think about the ramifications so that you can surf the wave along with me and not get drowned in it. In my personal update, I am still narrating audio for authors and editing those audio files. It's quite a long book, so it's taking a while and I can't uh, do hours and hours in the booth. I'm in the booth right now. So I kind of do four or five chapters and then take a break and then I edit those chapters and then uh, get back to it the next day. Um, So it does, you know, it's taking a bit of time. Also, the audio read is my final line edit. So as I am reading, I'm making some small changes. And then when I do the edit of the file, I'm updating the manuscript. And, you know, it's definitely a few sentences per chapter that have been through my proofreader and been through some beaters, uh, but I'm still making tiny changes to make it clearer or sound better. And that's the wonderful thing when you do your own audiobook and, you know, you realise that perhaps your sentence wasn't the best. <laughs> so you can rewrite it. Also, wanted to direct you to the Kindle Chronicles podcast. If you don't uh, listen to that, uh, Len Edgeley has been podcasting as long as I have, over a decade, and has interviewed some much bigger names, people like Jeff Bezos. <laughs> He's actually interviewed Jeff Bezos twice, uh, as well as Dean Koontz, Seth Godin, and many more big names. So uh, now with Joanna Penn as well. And uh, I was happy to be able to talk to Len. Len uh, is really knows a lot about Amazon. And in fact, he's going to come on this show later on this year to talk about some of the things he's learned. But definitely go over to The Kindle Chronicles. Uh, I'm in episode 598. So actually, Len is ahead of me. (laughs) So uh, definitely check out the show, even if you don't want to listen to my interview. So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments this week. Uh, Chris said, I love listening to the Creative Pen during long runs. It's a double evergreen. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was talking about evergreen and how focusing on health. Number one, health is the most important thing. Part of that is about hitting 45 this year, (laughs) to be fair. (laughs) I didn't, you know, get so much uh, into that when I was younger. But now it's like, right, health, number one. Emily Robertson says, hearing from the creative pen that she still has self-doubt is incredibly helpful. Knowing that it will never go away makes me realise it's something to be managed, not overcome. Yes, indeed, Emily. And uh, goodness me, the self I had some pretty big self-doubt this week. I think partly that um, self-doubt around obviously my business model with some of the stuff that's coming, but also self-doubt around what I can do that really is truly unique for me. And this is something that we all have to face. And yeah, I also find it quite liberating in a way. I, You know, don't be, what was it? Don't be comfortable with the status quo. 
I definitely got comfortable a couple of years ago. I kind of was like, yeah, yeah, everything's perfect. Just great. And then you realise, okay, nothing stands still. Time marches on and things change. So what can we do? And yeah, (laughs) so self-doubt. Oh my goodness. Yes, manage it. Don't. It won't disappear. Wild Bilbo on Twitter said, listening to the podcast for the first time, heard your interview with Nia Eyal. I'm very distractible, so I grabbed his audiobook. A great lesson with lots of strong advice. Now I just need to log off and get back to work. Welcome to the show. Um, Amanda Headley says, long TM run training night in prep for the Pittsburgh Marathon. Survived with the help of the Creative Pen podcast. (laughs) And in brackets, please make an AI info podcast. I appreciate that, Amanda. So I hope you enjoyed the futurist segment today. And then finally, one more. uh, Cheryl at CF Linz says, uh, favourite quote from the Creative Pen today When things are miserable in the news, people might want that uplifting book. Although personally, I reach for horror. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And in fact, uh, the preliminary preliminary ballot is out for the Bram Stoker Awards. Uh, So you can go check out some awesome books from that list uh, if you want to get into some good horror. Uh, And I've read quite a lot of those and they are good stuff. Right, today's show is sponsored by my patrons. Uh, You guys encourage me to keep podcasting, even in the downtimes when I wonder about the status quo. (laughs) And I really do appreciate it. Uh, It's not just the financial support, it's also the emotional support that you give me. And you guys enable me uh, to keep going. And thank you to everyone who's been supporting the show on Patreon for years now. And also those of you who have started recently, and I really appreciate it. There is a new bumper crop this week. So thanks to new patrons, BB Billado. Courtney Spain Aragon, D. Dupuis, Anne Bell Feinstein, Nathan Boxall, Kay de Bianca, Brendan Kelso, Kevin Dangor, Amanda Headley, Maureen Wise, and Krista Ludlow. I really appreciate your support on Patreon. Like the tweets and emails, it demonstrates you enjoy the show and want it to continue. And you can support the show with just a couple of dollars a month, a less than a coffee a month or a couple of coffees if you're feeling generous, because I do drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> and you'll get the extra monthly Q&A audio, including the backlist. And I sent out the extra audio uh, a couple of days ago. So you should have that if you are a patron. Uh, all of that is available if you support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. And I should say that uh, if you are a patron, then I tend to let patrons know before anyone else about stuff that is going on. Uh, so if I am going to do um, live events, I will the order will be I put it on my Patreon first, then I will send it out to my email list. um, And then I will also announce it on the podcast. Um, And then I guess I'd move into doing Facebook ads after that. That would be my level of trying to fill up events. I guess since we're on it right now, just to say I am speaking at the SPF Live, um, self-publishing Formula Live in um, London, London Book Fair, just before London Book Fair in March. I'll be speaking at uh, the Career Author Summit in Nashville in May. And I have something coming up very exciting, actually, in the fall or autumn, as we say over here, and I will be announcing that at some point. But I'm planning to do some things in the summer, uh, the UK summer. So we shall see. I will let you know. Okay, let's get into the interview with Rebecca. So tell us a bit more about your background and how you ended up focusing on authors and copyright in particular. Well, I've always been absolutely obsessed with books and that obsession started when I was really young. And I actually grew up in a house that didn't really have any books in it. Uh, So I would do all kinds of things to access them. I would raid all of the local libraries and my school libraries. Um, I would go down to the local charity shop. I knew when the soft touch volunteers were working and I knew that I'd be able to negotiate a really good rate. I think I used to be able to get them for about one cent each. 
um, back in the 80s. Um, so I've just had a really lifelong abiding passion for books. And so it's probably quite natural that uh, as my research career has progressed, there's always been this really strong theme um, of work around literary culture uh, and protection of authors and also libraries and the broader public interest in access to books as well. Mm, Fantastic. So tell us a bit more about the Authors Interest Project in particular and, and why it's so important. Well, this project stemmed from a growing concern that I had, which is that while authors are always put at the forefront of debates around copyright law, uh, very often they're actually being used to further other people's economic interests. Uh, And the thing is that copyright is structured around protecting the owner of copyright rather than the author of copyright. Um, And, you know, countries have uh, different ways of of dealing with this. Um, Some, particularly in continental Europe, have greater protection of authorship, a common law countries like the UK and Australia and the US, we have far less. Uh, but this is something that I really wanted to do something about. I wanted to make sure that when authors' um, interests were put within these debates, it was actually uh, going to help them actually further their very valid and important interests instead of always um, protecting other people. Um, what I really wanted to stop was authors benefiting from policies just only on sort of a theory of trickle-down economics. I wanted direct change to actually help authors in this, what is a really tricky time for them um, in the, the, the history of the book industry. Mm, that's fantastic. I want to pick up on something you said then, which is um, things benefiting the owner of copyright, not the author of the copyright. And I think many people might be confused. I still, <laughs> incredibly, find that authors often don't understand um what they're doing when they say sign a particular contract. So just explain the difference between the author and then the potential owner of the copyright. So usually the author will be the first owner of their copyright and the copyright uh, is created automatically as soon as you write something down on a piece of paper and it satisfies some very minimal hurdles then the copyright magically springs into existence. Uh, And then often the author will either um, transfer that entirely or license it as a condition of being able to get the work produced and available. So in the the case of books, very often they enter into a contract with a publisher and they sign away or they license certain rights. And those contracts can um, be phrased in all different kinds of ways. Uh, uh, too often publishers require authors to hand over the entire copyright as the cost of access, which is the kind of contract that I would say um, almost nobody should actually sign and you should think really carefully before you do that, Um, although there might be valid reasons too in certain circumstances. But um, more commonly, you will be asked to give an exclusive license of your your rights. And very commonly, that will be a broad uh, license over many kinds of uses and uh, typically for the entire term of the copyright. So that's your entire lifetime plus another 70 years. And an exclusive license of that kind is in essence, exactly the same as transferring ownership of those rights. Uh, So that's why the contracts are so important because while you're the one as an author that starts off with the copyright, you can very easily uh, uh, transfer all or almost all of that um, with just a flick of a pen. Yeah, and it's it's so funny because because I'm you know primarily a, an indie author, um, but I've I do see quite a few contracts people send me things, and I saw one recently that someone said this isn't this is okay, isn't it? And th- literally there was a clause that said all languages, all territories, all formats existing and to be invented for mm-hmm. the term of copyright. And I was yeah. like, seriously, did you not spot this? This is like the second clause. This is a really big. Cl- do you not understand what is going on here? So I mean to me that is an obviously bad clause but you've you've done a study of publishing contracts uh, from the archive of the Australian Society of Authors so what are some of the things that you found that authors should watch out for? Well unfortunately the kind of clause you just described is all too common um, and this is why authors need to be really careful and they need to be a little bit savvy because their copyright is really 
um, is is really their business and their means of making a livelihood here. So what authors should be making sure that they do is um, even if they do have to uh, sign over broad rights as a condition of getting that distribution deal or that contract or whatever it happens to be, they should be very thoughtful about making sure that there are appropriate reversion clauses in that contract to allow them to get those rights back. Uh, so the kinds of uh, reversion clauses that are really common that people might have heard of or out-of-print clauses, for example. So you might have signed over all your rights for the entire term of copyright, but there can be a clause that says, well, if the book goes out of print uh, sometime during that period, uh, then the author can get their rights back. Um, also really important are what we call use it or lose it clauses. And these are um, for circumstances where the publisher has taken some right. So, for example, uh, rights in foreign languages, like you talked about, or foreign territories, but then they don't go on to actually exploit those rights. There should be a clause there that you negotiate in order to make sure you can recover those rights in that eventuality. Um, and that's particularly important, I think, for uh, hybrid uh, writers who probably um, have got some skills and some capacity to make use of those rights in the event that the publisher doesn't actually do it themselves. And that might be self-publishing on a platform internationally into those foreign territories, or it might be, um, you know, working with one of the, the emerging services for, you know, fairly economical uh, generation of an audiobook or whatever it happens to be. So really absolutely vital. What we found is that very often the out-of-print clause is really inadequate or outdated. Uh, you want to make sure that you get one that's based on objective criteria. It shouldn't just be based on technical availability and say something like, well, uh, you can get your rights back if the book's not available in any form. That's not adequate. Mm. It needs to have some kind of objective criteria that might say, all right, so you can get your rights back if sales have been below X amount in the last two accounting periods or you know, X number of unit sales. It needs to have something very clear there so that everybody understands their rights and responsibilities. And for those use it or lose it clauses, what we were kind of horrified to find in our research was how a few contracts actually had those. Now, it, it, this is the kind of clause that publishers are usually, reputable publishers are usually pretty happy to negotiate in if you ask for it, but they still tend not to be there just uh, upfront. And so really important that authors know to ask for those and negotiate them in. Um, and this is where doing a little bit of reading and Googling, doing your due diligence and finding out what these um, what they should ask for is really, really important. And you might not feel like doing it uh, at the start when you're really excited about your contract, but you'll absolutely wish that you did um, maybe three years later or five years later when those rights haven't been exploited or the book's gone out of print and you desperately want to do something else with it. Yeah, exactly. And many people kind of are so bowled over with the emotional happiness of, yay, somebody wants me, that they kind of forget the reality down the line. So, um, for example, uh, territory, which, and it's so funny because, again, because I'm, you know, always been very globally minded, um, and I've sold books now in 136 countries, um, which most traditionally published authors will never sell books in that many countries because yeah, their books just not. aren't, yeah, their books aren't available in those country. So if people sign a world English contract, which is very standard, there's just no way that those books are going to be available, you know, in countries like Namibia or, you know, Thailand yeah. or, you know, and, and that's what kind of drives me nuts about the, this world English idea, whereas, um, the, the you know, an Australian publisher, for example, where you are, absolutely sign a contract in Australia for, you know, all all formats, if you like. But an Australian publisher just doesn't have the necessary reach into all English-speaking markets. Would, would, that, would you agree? Uh, so there are some that do. There's a couple that do a very, very good job uh, of that. Uh, and there's others that really don't have much of an international sales force at all. And so that's another really important question to ask. Look at what rights they're asking for and ask them to justify that. If they're asking for the world rights, then be asking what is your plan for selling my book to every country in the world? And where's the clause that says, if you fail to do that, I get them back? Um, these are all just really sensible uh, questions that nobody's going to take offence at. Um, it's, not, it's not the kind of thing that costs you a, a contract. It's just uh, ordinary business savvy. 
Yeah, and then the use it or lose it clause is also interesting. I think the biggest thing that this is relevant for at the moment is is audio rights, because Mm -hmm. um, most publishers seem to have taken audio rights, um, but uh, authors have signed over Mm -hmm. (laughs) audio rights. Um, But many of them, I would say most of them, are not actually getting those books into audio. So, you know, um, if people, I mean, they can put that clause in, but what, what is the sort of time limit is it three years, five years, 10 years for mm. saying if you don't do it in this amount of time? Yeah, that, that has been a big change over the last few years. It used to be that authors used to be able to hold on to their audiobooks, audiobook rights much more commonly than, than they can today. Um, and, and this is a, a really troubling one because, uh, you know, we know that books tend to sell the very most in the first months after publication and certainly within the first year. And if you don't have an audiobook ready to go on publication, then that means that there's a certain number of lost sales that you can expect. Um, and publishers who don't actually invest in making that book available up front, they might be quite behind the curve and they're just waiting to see whether there'll be enough uh, copies sold to actually justify it. Uh, whereas if you had held the rights yourself, then you might have done something a little bit differently. So there, there's a very um, a very big mix. Uh, there are some publishers who are, you know, so obsessed with audio and so um, worried that if they give the rights back too soon, then this might be the one that got away. Maybe it'll, it'll go big just after you get the rights back. Um, and so they don't want to have any kind of um, a time limit on the audiobook rights at all. And there are others that take a more reasonable view and, uh, and say that, look, if we haven't done anything with them after a year, realistically, given we know how books sell and how most of the sales happen in the first year, we're probably not going to really do very much with it. So if you've got another plan, then sure, you take it. But very big variability on the audiobook question. Mm, Definitely. And I I mean, I think generally the rule is, uh, you know, work with a publisher for what they are really good at and then try and keep everything else so that you have the chance to do it yourself, I guess, or work with other partners in those areas. That's right. And many publishers are, are, are great at this, that they don't try and take rights that they don't have a plan to exploit. And that's something really welcome that we found in the contracts. Not everyone was trying to take worldwide rights. There were, um, you know, we saw quite some contracts that just asked for Australia and New Zealand rights. And if the publisher really only has a plan for selling in Australia and New Zealand, then that's the appropriate thing to do, or the UK or wherever it is that they happen to have their strong footprint. Mm. Um, but at the very least, if they do take broad rights, then uh, then they need to um, uh, be willing to put clauses in to return those to you in the event that they don't use them. That's just absolutely crucial. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so you mentioned uh, that, you know, copyright is the means of making a livelihood uh, and you've noted the decline in author incomes. And uh, of course, many of us are concerned about the dominance of some of the players, technical or publishing related mm-hmm. in English speaking mm. markets. So what are some of the things that authors can do to protect and increase their income that you found? Mm. Um, look, Given that the overall book market really isn't growing very much, I think one of the key interesting questions is to figure out how authors can get a bigger share of that pie. And we also have to bear in mind that um, for traditional publishing at least, there isn't very much pie to go around. Um, If you look at a breakdown of the economics of traditional print publishing, uh, it just doesn't make any sense. Financially, it doesn't make any sense. Now, the majors, uh, yes, are very often doing very well. They've had a huge amount of industry consolidation. They've reduced their costs to the bone. Uh, They often don't uh, pay their employees particularly well either. So there's some efficiencies there. And we've, we've heard... In the UK, uh, Simon and Schuster and Penguin Random House have had profits of around 16%. So, so they're going gangbusters. But at the other end, the independent publishers, they're facing rising costs, um, particularly uh, salary costs or, or labour costs, um, and that's within a, a market that's not particularly growing. So I think coming into this question, we have to acknowledge that uh, lots, many parts of the industry are sort of already uh, struggling very much to stay afloat. So where does that extra money come from? 
Well, one of the really interesting answers to that question comes from Cory Doctorow uh, and his Shut Up and Take My Money platform. Uh, so you might be familiar with this already, Joanna, but uh, he came up with this platform a couple of years ago thinking about the same question uh, where he uh, set up, uh, uh, got permission from his publishers basically to be able to sell his ebooks online um, and he sells them to anyone anywhere in the world. So he holds the rights to do that. He doesn't have to worry and say, sorry, you're in Bulgaria, I'm not allowed to take your money because of territoriality. He can take the money from anyone. That's why it's called Shut Up and Take My Money um, because he was frustrated at his books not being available to people. And by doing that, he's actually pocketing the 30% that Amazon would usually take or the the other online um, e-tailer would usually take as well as the standard 25% or so that the publisher um, would give him in royalties. So that's a really interesting way that he's come up with to effectively more than double his royalty rate, but by taking on um, the role of the e-tailer there. So that's one possibility that I think has really interesting potential for the future. Mm, yeah. And I mean, obviously a lot of us indies have been selling direct. I've been selling direct exactly. since, since yeah. 2009. Um, I, I use payhip.com, which is fantastic and gets around all the EU digital tax stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I recommend that platform to people if they are interested in in one that's uh, sort of just available uh, everywhere. Um, so and so th- yeah, this is, this is one way for tr- traditionally published authors to try oh, and okay. get their type to something that would uh, mimic an, an indie's cut while taking advantage of the the marketing platform and breadth of their traditional publisher. So I think that's that's why it's kind of interesting, maybe more for your traditionally published authors than the indies who are already been all over this for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is interesting. I think selling direct is definitely one of the things that many of us are doing who those of us who are not obsessed with ranking, for example, because of course every direct sale has no, you know, no one sees the ranking on Amazon or any other platform and it doesn't, it doesn't get measured by anyone's bestseller list. Uh, but you get like, I get like 92% of the money, (laughs) you know, it's, it is definitely a way forward. And, um, uh, we won't get into it today, but of course, blockchain has a lot of potential for uh, enabling this. I think Ornarati, you've talked to as well, but we're very hopeful for a, a blockchain uh, potential for, um, you know, sort of stamping copyright and selling direct through the value chain. So I think exciting yeah. things in selling direct ahead. Yeah, and ideally you would be able to have your cake and eat it. You would be able to um, get the 92% uh, and you would be able to have some kind of um, ranking that could be ascertained like as a way for people to see, okay, this book is selling, um, which could also be facilitated by a blockchain kind of solution. Yeah, definitely. I think there's so much to come in that area. But let's um, let's talk a bit about the future and, and AI because, um, you know, you talk about publishers not making money. And I think, uh, well, we're seeing a lot of uh, journalist uh, type platforms, news platforms are using AI writing software now, nonfiction. We're talking about nonfiction here. Mm-hmm. And I, I just sent you an article um, from VentureBeat reporting that the Tencent robot dreamwriter AI had been granted copyright on an article in China, which is the, as far as I know, the first AI uh, piece of writing that has been granted copyright. Now, it is in China, but the US Patent and Trademark Office has also called for comment on the impact of AI on creative work. So what are your thoughts on, you know, this AI qualifying as a work of authorship? Mm. Yeah, look, it's it's a really interesting question for us copyright nerds because, Uh, we've always had this rule uh, in common law countries, at least. No, actually, no, right around the world. China is the first one I've heard that has departed from this, that you need to have a human author. Uh, And this was the foundation of the Berne Convention, which Victor Hugo put forward and and first got up in 1886. Um, You've heard about it much more recently over and over with this monkey selfie, which just is the, the copyright case that won't go away. Where when the monkey stole the camera from the photographer who owned the copyright and the resulting photos, and the answer was there was no copyright because the monkey can't hold copyrights because they're not a human. So it's the same thing with the machines. And there are um, some some interesting laws in place already. Um, in the UK, for example, there has long been a provision that uh, says that the uh, author of the computer-generated work is taken to be the person um, who who basically 
put the arrangements together for the creation of the work. So it might be the programmer who um, developed the AI software in the first place, but that only takes us so far because now we're talking about deep learning and neural nets and there is nobody really who made the arrangements necessary for the creation of the work. It really is left completely to the machine in a way that was not envisaged when that law was passed in the UK. So we've got real we've got real issues to grapple with here and i think we need to we need to be thinking about what we want to achieve with copyright um there's there's two major things really we um which we can sort of as a shorthand we can call them incentives and rewards we want to incentivize the creation the initial creation of of cultural and informational works so that society can have access to knowledge and culture and so we also want to incentivize their being continued con- Um, investments in their continued availability and then on top of that we want to recognize and reward creators for their contributions of um, personality and labor that gave us that amazing thing and if we think about these rationales then maybe uh, we don't have we don't always have um, a reason to give a full copyright to an AI because maybe the AI doesn't need to be recognized for their contribution of personality in the same way that a human author might, but perhaps we want to give some lesser incentive, right? So there's all of these kinds of uh, considerations that we're thinking about at the moment. Yeah, and it's interesting because I I was having a bit of an existential moment around, around this news article, <laughs> mainly because in it, it says um, the article's articulation and expression had a certain originality. Mm, and I met, didn't though, did it? <laughs> and, well, and it met the legal requirements to be classed as a written work. Mm-hmm. So to me, it was less around the fact that it got copyright protection than the fact that they considered that it had some kind of originality. I mean, the fact is that a lot of people are already reading articles in financial papers and sports and things that are written by AI. Um, Mm -hmm. So this, this kind of brings me into... If if I was a publisher, if I was a big publisher, right, if I had control of that much IP and I could read my entire backlist. Let's say I'm a very large romance publisher with a huge number of reasonably formulaic books that have been very popular over many years. People can Mm -hmm. infer what that publisher might be. Um, But, you know, if I could read all of those books into a a deep learning algorithm for it to uh, output certain books, um, that then I could pay people to just clean up at the last minute and I'm not making enough money wouldn't I do that? So this is a kind of existential mm. question is, are yeah. we, will authors be disintermediated by um, AI writers in the same way that m- journalists, uh, many journalists mm. are? Mm. So you telling me that has um, triggered this memory in me from, I think it was two years ago, uh, there was a neural net that was asked to learn how to write titles for romance novels. Um, and the I think the results of that sort of suggest we're a little a little bit further away from having to worry about authors being disintermediated in, in, in that way. I remember some of them, uh, what were they? There was one of the titles was The Surgeon's Baby Surgeon. Uh, there was another one that was The Husband Man. These are the kinds of titles that the neural net had come up with, which just uh, which made me feel like maybe the, the title writers were not going to be out of a job very quickly. Uh, but this is a really important, deeper question because there is going to be a time where um, the results are not just funny and embarrassing um, and they, they may well start to compete on broader platforms than nonfiction and basic sports writing and finance news. And then what is it that we do? Um, well, I mean, then the question becomes, do we permit that as a matter of copyright? Because um, those contracts that we were talking about, they don't actually permit, unless the whole copyright's been taken, I can't think of any that I've looked at that would permit the rights holder to, to use the work for that particular use. That might be a right retained by the author. So they would need the need to get permission or there would need to be some kind of copyright exception. And then we need to get into all of those questions about, well, when should it be permitted for people to um, uh, learn uh, an AI uh, system on somebody else's IP when it's something like a novel. And we can see that there's a real spectrum here. Like if somebody just comes along, uh, they just 
train the algorithm on Stephen King's catalogue and then you ask the neural net to write a horror novel from just that catalogue, really taking his tone and vocabulary and expression, um, if your result, let's, let's take this very far into the future and more sophistication, the results are good imitation and people will happily sub- substitute it at a lower price for the higher price, genuine Stephen King. Um, that's a situation where I think the author needs not just to have a right of compensation, but they need to have a right to be able to veto that. But then if we take it to the other side, um, let's say we've got uh, a, a neural net that's sort of trained on every novel in human existence, um, then it gets much trickier because there's not going to be any one individual author's tone uh, taken or, or voice taken. Um, and it would be also quite difficult, I think, to understand what contribution access to any single book actually made. So these are going to be really vexing and tricky questions as well. Yeah. And again, it kind of brings up for me the idea of blockchain and micropayments, because what you could say is, okay, we read into the database X hundred, let's say a hundred thousand books, all of them qualify for a micropayment if they are used in another work down the line. Um, And that's the type of thing that, again, could be tracked with the kind of potential blockchain technology out there. But as you say, it's impossible right now in the same way that I can't track when I write a novel, I can't, you know, I know that some of my influences include Stephen King and Dan Brown mm-hmm. and John Connolly and, you know, people who I've read are in my brain in some way, mm-hmm. but I couldn't tell you what percentage of my influences come from who. So mm-hmm. I, I, I think this is fascinating. You and I like geek out about this stuff, right? <laughs> I know some people are listening and like, oh no, the AI is coming for our jobs. But I mean, I always say to people, look, the main thing is to be human and to build a personal brand and make people yeah. value you. And uh, there will always be artisan product, you know, in the same way yeah. we've got mass produced everything, but we also have artisan produced stuff, which people will pay more money for. That's kind of the future I see mass produced on one level and then artisan on the other. But I think that's right. And um, I, I, I genuinely think that uh, while we're going to see huge increases in the use of AI for developing fact-based works, we're really, really far, if they'll ever bridge that to getting any kind of um, readable literary fiction um, from these algorithms. Uh, I think that there is something really special in the human brain, the human mind and the connections that it makes and that uh, for uh, a neural net to produce something like that in any kind of foreseeable future, it's going to be a thousand monkeys typing for a thousand years kind of situation and the amount of time that you'd have to spend wading through all of the, the muck to find it would make it unfeasible when there's so many terrific uh, writers out there producing great work um, that is much more easy to find. So I'm I'm maybe a little bit less worried about that from taking over um, fiction writers' jobs, but definitely those remaining uh, jobs that still exist uh, in journalism and freelance writing, I think that there is definitely a risk that – these kinds of technologies are going to be taking over more and more of that work and leaving less and less sort of side gigs uh, for writers looking to supplement their main uh, writing income. Yeah, I totally agree. I I think the uh, blogging uh, content sort of uh, places, you know, the, the, I mean, that work is uh, the co- the prices on that have gone down so much. Um, mm. It's very difficult to make money doing sort of online content writing and stuff like that. But I think that is what it will go first, um, mm. especially to those places that already have a lot of content to read from. Uh, I saw yeah. just before Christmas, so uh, December 2019, a, a company that launched uh, highly funded um, that ha- is is working with big companies like Deloitte and you know big corporate around developing internal content based on uh, what they already have with with AI writers. So, um, yeah, I agree with you. I I do want to, though, uh, last question, um, because you've mentioned there, it is, is, I agree with you that there are terrific writers producing great work, which which were your words there. But the problem, and and this may be why um, publishers won't use the AI. The problem is that those authors are undervaluing themselves so much that it's actually cheaper to get a human to write something than it is to start work. I mean, the reason a lot of these companies are, you know, using AI writers is because it's cheaper to use the AI writers. But if it's cheaper to use a human writer because the author 
undervalues themselves so much that they are willing. And I know people who have signed these contracts for the life of copyright, all formats, for not even an advance, for just Mm, a small percentage of, of, um, you know, revenue. And that might even be... um, you know, just a tiny amount. They might not even make a couple of thousand dollars from their mm. work over yeah. time. So, what what are your thoughts on that? Like, how how do we how do we get writers to value themselves? Well, look, we're 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 really at this point now. You can you can be shortlisted for Australia's most prestigious literary prize and gross well under five thousand dollars, so a couple of thousand pounds. That is absolutely a possible thing to do in in the the today's book market so it, it it that is it is I think cause for some despair and lots of thinking about what we can do about it I do think it's not there's two issues here there's absolutely there um there is sometimes a question of of creators undervaluing themselves creative labor is seen as being really desirable um, lots of work has been done into, in, in this in the field of cultural economics. We know that people will paint a fence for far less than they're willing to. Uh, sorry, they, they will. Uh, if, if their choice is to paint a picture or paint a fence, then they'll paint the picture for much less money than it would take them to paint the fence. Um, and there's also because uh, it's so desirable, then there's lots more people in the queue. Um, and also, it's very difficult for um, anyone to predict in advance which book is actually going to sell. And so. Um, the publisher, if someone wants more money, can very easily just take the next person in line who is willing to take it. So we've got all of these really troubling labour dynamics there um, that can result in a lot of the value um, being extracted from the author and being transferred somewhere else. But we've also got these bigger structural problems, at least in the traditional book industry. I've talked already uh, today about how little money there can be for some segments of that and we're really dealing, I've been very geeky already, so I'm going to keep going. We're really dealing with this um, uh, unfortunate monopsony or oligopsony situation here. And those are uh, big words to just talk about buyer power. We've got book markets, uh, for example, that are very heavily controlled by Amazon for lots of reasons. Uh, and uh, they have buyer power or monopsonist power, they call it in antitrust or competition law. And that allows them to really squeeze the publishers that they work with and the authors that they deal with directly um, to charge all kinds of fees to the publishers, to reduce their margins, to insist on um, certain kind of percentage of sales and so on. And then in turn, those publishers feel they need to pass that squeeze downstream and they squeeze their employees, they consolidate, they uh, reduce the money that's spent on marketing. But um, a lot of their costs are fixed costs. There's not a lot of room left to squeeze and the one person who is the most negotiable tends to be the author and so in the circumstances where the publishers are really getting squeezed we find that that squeeze is being passed down to creators and that's why we're seeing such sort of dramatic reductions in the size of advances I think over the last few years because everyone else is squeezed in many cases and so the author gets squeezed as well so I think one of the crucial things is going to be to address um, those competition issues that give those big buyers along the way, and the big buyers are Amazon, and the big buyers are also the big publishers. Um, and this is in the book industry, but also other kinds of creative industries. I think it's going to be crucial to reduce that buyer power, reintroduce competition, um, and hopefully allow there to be some more money left at the end of the day for the creator. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as we've discussed, really getting authors to be more empowered and knowledgeable about what they can ask for in contracts so that they have the potential to make more money um, themselves if the publisher uh, doesn't uh, exploit those rights. Absolutely. Look, and I'm very sympathetic. I would often much rather be doing my own writing than thinking about copyright as well. Um, And I understand why people don't want to think about it. It's complicated and it's frustrating. But as a writer, if you just spend a couple of hours doing some research around contracts, um, there's a lot of terrific resources online, very reputable people talking about what you should be asking for, what you absolutely shouldn't be signing up to and how to ask for something different. A couple of hours investment is going to be knowledge you've got for your whole life and you're going to be 
um, doing the right thing by yourself and your work if you make that investment. So I do really recommend it. Absolutely. And of course, you're a reputable person. So um, where can people (laughs) find you and everything you do online? Uh, Well, we do have a blog. Uh, None of it is authored by an AI. We write it all ourselves. So that's at (laughs) authorsinterest.org. And you can find me uh, talking about random things on Twitter at rghibli, R-G-I-B-L-I. And I love having conversations with people about all of these issues on there. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Rebecca. That was great. Thank you. It was lots of fun. Lovely talking to you, Joanna. So I hope you found the discussion with Rebecca interesting today and that you feel empowered with more knowledge around what is possible with copyright and how to protect your author career. In the next show, I'll be talking about writing crime, myths and misconceptions about the FBI with Jerry Williams, who is a former FBI agent, and also about how she started podcasting as book marketing for her own crime thriller novels, but it's turned into far more than that. And Jerry is in one of the most popular niches in podcasting, so her number, her download numbers are incredible. <laughs> Uh, that true crime area is huge. It's really, yeah. Anyway, we talk about that. We talk about lots of things, but Jerry is brilliant. And of course, being British, I all I know about the FBI is what's in the TV and film. So we talk a bit about the all of those myths and uh, it's pretty fun chat. So happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time. <laughs>